0: Okay, welcome everybody to the the first Watchtower podcast of 2022. I think we have some interesting stuff to talk about today. With me is Drea London Petter, uh, the the defer. Uh, director. She runs our global digital forensics and response organization, as well as Naranjan Jayanad. He is a senior threat researcher. Well, he does a lot of stuff. He's a team leader. He runs the groups. He, he run, researches threats. He, he hunts for threats. So um, a pretty cool panel here, just the three of us, to dive into uh, what we talked about. And um, what I'll start out is just a brief intro. What we usually do uh, in, in all the other months is basically the watchtower report that we put out covers the threats that we've seen in the previous month what's the worst what's the you know what's the the story behind it we deep dive it you know it's like was there a geopolitical event that did, did Israel attack Iran did Iran attack Israel and what was the the, what were politicians saying and what did that, how did that equate to a cyber war? Like right now we got Russia and Ukraine, that might even be a story in the, uh, I'm not making promises yet for you Naranjan, but you know, who knows, maybe there's an underlying cyber war with Russia and Ukraine right now. I'm sure there's a lot going on there. Um, but, you know, that's what we try to do is, is understand not just the reverse engineering of a payload and how to hunt for it, but also what's going on behind it. What's the story behind these threats and these attacks and uh, we usually deep dive early on there. We'd send out page, you know, 100, 200-page uh, reports every month. And we realized it got exhaustive. So recently, we've been zeroing in on some key threats to just to kind of make it more of a, um, something, something we can handle that in the, the volume of the report. Now, what we did in kind of a, a two-month span, it was a December with the holidays and, and all the craziness, we added December and January into a single report. We're getting back into the monthly, regular monthly cadence um, in February. And we also are, are adding a lot of new flash reports for, for our clients to see real-time reporting on, on new threats and and, uh, and what, what's out there. But um, <clears throat> the, the December, January was a special edition uh, of our Watchtower report. It was really this, uh, this year-end report where we took a step back and we looked at everything we saw in the previous year. I mean, things that were of interest. What we're, we're out there. The Watchtower team is tracking threats. They're tracking the the real time evolutions of the cyber threat landscape. What are the newest exploits, newest campaigns, uh, movements by threat actors? And that's what we're using to hunt for our customers. What you know, what, what's going on? And we have to know what's going on before we can launch our hunts. And in the last year, we, we've uh, We've conducted, This is really the first year of Watchtower being in existence, 2021, we were born, we've grown up now very, very quickly in a sense of having t- some of the best threat researchers, intel analysts, malware reverse engineers, forensic experts, everything that we need to define um, research, analyze the threat landscape, and then hunt for it and tell our clients what we're doing. As part of that is the reporting. We've put out over a thousand pages of threat intelligence reporting. We've put out uh, over 160 unique investigations, and each unique investigation might be inclusive of, of dozens of, of queries. Each query might be inclusive of hundreds of atomic IOCs or multiple behavioral IOCs, where we fully understood the kill chain and 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 uh, defined. the the modus operandi of individual threat actors. We've created a threat library, a watchtower hunting library, so that anybody who uses Sentinel-1 can walk up and say, I'm interested in whatever, Process Halloween today or APT-29 today or whatever the newest threat is, CVE, whatever, type that into the library and pull up everything we have to launch their own high quality hunt. So basically we're making everybody, we're making all of our clients threat hunters in their own right we're up to 500 queries there now. So you can do one and a half a day for an entire year and that's growing, it's gonna, it's growing extremely quickly. So we've really done a lot. It's been an exciting year for Watchtower and what we provide, the value you provide for our clients. Um, so with that said, in this podcast, we're gonna run through uh, some of the things we saw, some of the things that were of interest. So if you haven't seen this report, uh, I don't know if on a podcast I can just read out a URL, but Google it and and, uh, and look, <laughs> um, you know, Watchtower year-end report. Uh, it is available. It's open. We have a link for it. Um, I'm sure we can add that into the podcast somehow. Um, but we're going to kick it off. Let's talk about number one. What were the most active malware families we saw in 2021? There's so many malware families out there. Uh, what were the most active? We've kind of locked this down a bit to three categories: uh, one being info stealers, um, one being human-operated ransomware, so what ransomware groups are most active, and uh, and remote administration tools, so rats. So I'm going to kind of hand this off to um, well to Drea and Ranjan. Naranjan, what do you think? What what was your take on info stealers? Um. That-
1: Info-stealers are not new, they keep evolving and rebranding just like ransomware groups almost every year. So 2021 was no surprise. We saw millions and millions of uh, phishing campaigns that were delivering different kinds of infostealers, rats, and these phishing emails were also used during some of uh, the human operator ransomware attacks. So Overall, it was a very, very busy year for us. Um, and from threat hunter or threat analyst experience that we have, we don't just investigate on a specific threat or a specific uh, attack story. We try to correlate that with our known uh, TTPs that we learned from the past attacks. And um, Info stealer, as uh, you said, Brian, there was one particular stealer like Squirrel Waffle, it was brand new. The loader was not uh, you know, reported before, but one thing that was interesting was like, just like other info stealers, they operate not just for stealing info information from the user's machine, they also help in downloading additional malware and then again, uh, try to steal additional information from the machines and report back to attackers. So Squirrel Waffle was no different. The loader was kind of new, but it did share some code uh, that was seen uh, in Hansitter, Zloader, or Sniff, which were known in the past. <clears throat> All this had one thing in common: they were uh, programmed to, uh, you know, steal banking credentials. They were mostly operated by financially motivated threat groups. So, one new infrastructure that we saw in 2021 was definitely squirrel Waffle, and they were hitting across the the planet in a heavy you know multiple campaign fashion so mm-hmm. they didn't spare any specific sector they were just behind almost every single sectors out there and we started seeing them collaborating with or should i say human operated ransomware groups started using squirrel waffle uh, among their tool sets and uh, there were some interesting facts which we can definitely cover up in the next coming topics, but that that is another interesting collaboration effort that we spotted. With, and we had some evidence that uh, we were able to tie up these multiple groups using uh, shared code, shared infrastructure uh, from different attack stories that we investigated. And they were all captured in our earlier publications of Western reports. Yeah. I and-
0: love it. I love it when we can do... Uh, find that shared code and find shared techniques so that we can make one hunting query that'll span multiple threat groups. Yeah. So just to clarify, we had one through five. One was Squirrel Waffle, two Z-Loader, three Drydex, four Sock Golish, five Iced ID. And I think Squirrel Waffle City in that number one spot makes total sense. Uh, We saw that again and again and again. It came later in the year. I'm not quite sure when it came out, October maybe? September september okay um and it was uh it, it immediately became massive i mean they had a lot of success out there um so i can see why what it started growing is also a not just a uh, info stealer but also being leveraged by ransomware groups to, to drop ransomware as well sock goldish as well earlier in the year we saw a lot of that um so yeah so some interesting findings top five for the ransomware groups now i found this one interesting it was PISA one. Number two is Conti, number three, Lockbit, number four, Reevil, number five, Ragnar. Um, I don't know. I mean, I found that interesting because I hear so much more about Conti and Rival, Uh, and seeing Pisa capture that number one spot was, uh, I don't know, I was a little surprised. What was your take, Dreya?
2: Yeah, I was actually surprised about that too. Um, but we did see an uptick, in, in at least from the investigative
0: perspective, right, which is
2: is what a lot of my teams focused on. We did see an uptick towards the end of the year where we had some some case volume related to PISA, uh, and and I think you know Conti number two makes a lot of sense because if you look you know back a step to the info stealer with, with Squirrel Waffle being number one. Uh, towards the end of the year, we saw a, a huge uptick of Conti using Squirrel Waffle uh, f- uh, in their attack uh, lifecycle. So it, uh, you know, it, it definitely makes sense that those two will be together. Uh, and then, you know, having Lockbit at number three, we, we talked a lot about Lockbit um, this year, you know, Lockbit kind of started in 2019. And then Lockbit 2.0 uh, came out later uh, this summer. And, they were sort of made famous because they claimed responsibility for the Accenture attack um, that captured, I think, six terabytes of confidential information, um, some of which we believe, you know, belong to some business partners or customers of Accenture. The, the other sort of interesting thing, I think, from that attack, if you guys remember, was um, they gave them, I think, only four hours for the, the ransomware payment. So definitely heating up the pressure there um you know for the LockBit guys they were also the ones brian i don't know if you remember we we showed uh some some screenshots of they actually build war cards of their mm-hmm. um of their they have their own excel tool called SteelBit. and then of course their encryption tool being lockbit 2.0 and, and they claim you know based on their testing and and the evidence of their testing to be the most efficient uh and and i guess prolific when it comes to to exfiltration and encryption. So I thought it was interesting to kind of see how these RAS groups are starting to build traditional business models and, um, you know, kind of going out and it helps them with recruiting and, and, and it helps them kind of demonstrate, I think, what their their strengths are in a traditional business sense, unlike what you would maybe think of from a criminal organization.
0: It, it, yeah, it's super interesting how these, they almost evolve into, I'm not going to call them legitimate, but, you know, pseudo legitimate organizations that are, um, well, no, not legitimate at all, but the the structure of of legitimacy, of how a legitimate business would run. It is, it is super interesting. Um, Coming down to the rats, we're going to move on, but Redline Steeler was number one. Flawed Hammy was number two, Asian Tesla three, Rimco's four and number five was Nanocore. So, um, some interesting research there. Uh, the next thing we talked about was off-the-shelf tools. So, what do we see most often? And this is challenging to hunt for. I mean, we've done a lot and within Watchtower, how in, in figuring out ways to determine the LOL beans, right? The LOL bins, however, we call it but living off the land binaries. When attackers use normal system administration tools. What can we? uh, What can we? How can we define that? And in in order to to leverage their attacks, and we saw some really interesting ones. AnyDesk is a you know VPN type structure, or not VPN? Excuse me, like a remote desktop type of app, and uh, we saw that used a lot. Um, What what else stands out to you, uh, Drea or or in and some of these?
1: Well, Mimikatz was another very common topic that a common top uh, tool that was quite uh, used in multiple attacks throughout 2021 and even the years before. Uh, So, and since Mimikatz is easily deployable and it's modular and supports both 32 bit and 64 bit operating systems, it was still a hot favorite for a lot of attackers. so, Brian, when you talked about Squirrel, Waffle, Conti, and all, right, so they every single attack or attack group almost uh, picks up a specific set of tools when they want to attack an organization, and as threat hunters, we always look for these common traits, and then we connect the dots, and we try to attribute it to specific groups, so uh, Mimiket is this one such tool that that is quite commonly used by a numerous group of attack, attack groups, and we cannot Attribute just based on that and that is when we look for tools like any desk or our clone which are quite commonly used at different stages of attacks as well, and another uh, common tool that we were uh, we saw in multiple attacks were nmap and procdump which are also used for. Uh, you know, learning about the. Uh, user environment or for dumping some credentials in their environment, respectively, so powershell was another very common uh you know hot favorite for attackers because it's quite commonly used by admins and it's very used uh, useful and easy to be used by any user and attackers would normally use powershell not just for decoding something they could use it for downloading additional payloads even run mimicats or any other file on a particular machine so yes. know all this process uh i mean all of this did show high risk values because they were very easily available off-the-shelf tools so it was very difficult for us to you know keep an eye on different ways our attackers would try to abuse them
0: yeah it's so interesting i think you know where things like mimicats it's i see it all the time in 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 the attack chain in the kill chain of, of various attacks from all kinds of different attacks mm-hmm. but it's not something we necessarily define as malware um, but it's so frequently used in attacks, it's it's you know it's a it call it a pen testing tool, call it almost system administration administration password audit tool, uh, but it's you know defining this fine line between a pen test tool or a sysadmin tool and malware is is interesting, right? I mean, it's not a, mm-hmm. to me, at least in my head, it's not a bright line where this is one side and this is the other side, the good and the bad. It's uh, mm-hmm. very much kind of a thin gray line that kind of blurs in a lot of different spots.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's, <laughs> that's what makes this so difficult from a monitoring um, perspective and just the, the general cybersecurity hygiene of an enter- enterprise looking at, you know, these are all great indicators of, of attacker activity, but they're also, in, in some cases, maybe not all the all the time of Mimi Cats, but especially when you start talking about, you know, uh, NMAP and PS exec and WMI, you start thinking about these are also indicators of just general administrative activity. So how do you separate um the good versus the bad and how do you how do you uh, respond and detect that quickly uh, i think that's why it's you know it's so successful um and continues to be for attackers they don't really frankly need to um to step outside the boundaries of these very simple tools that are oftentimes just already there waiting for them
0: yeah exactly oh man we make it easy sometimes too easy um all right, well, let's take a look at the, the zero days. This is really kind of cool. So Sentinel-1 um, has discovered throughout the course of 2021, some major, major zero days that really had a, a, a significant impact on the security world. And uh, it's kind of cool, it's kind of interesting, just you know, based on what our threat researchers um, within our research team have been doing and uh, within our Sentinel Labs team as well. So, uh, you know, the, this first one we we dove into a little bit was um, CV 2021-24092, 12 years in hiding a privilege escalation vulnerability in Windows Defender. So anybody using Windows Security or Windows Defender was basically at risk for for privilege uh you know, for for privilege escalation, basically going to um, you know, being able to, giving additional privileges to an attacker so they can launch whatever tools attacks they need. That's huge. I mean, Windows Defender is everywhere, almost is, is everywhere is Windows or Microsoft Office or, or just Windows OS. I mean, that's uh I mean, what are your thoughts? Like, how big is that?
2: Yeah, I think they I mean, it's gonna over over a billion devices. Um, and so, yeah, it was certainly very impactful. You know, tw- 12 years of, of of vulnerability, essentially. And, and I think those that, that privilege escalation, if I re- remember correctly, could be from a non-administrative user. So, um, you know, that's that's certainly a big risk. Um, I, I do know that they came back and patched it um, at, at some point in the the CVE was released in February and the patch was also released in, in February as I think it's just a general patch Tuesday patch. So, so at least the patch has been um, you know, put out there and hopefully most folks have that now, but, uh, but yeah, definitely very interesting find um, from our Sentinel labs team. They have, they have a few of, uh, of them this year. There's a couple in the almost CVSS 9.0 CVSS 8.8 range from this year. Uh, there was another one in May, and this was more, it was related to, to Dell computers from a BIOS driver that also resulted in privilege escalation. And um, there were, I think, five CVEs related to that, but the vulnerability has been uh, in place, I guess, since 2009. So hundreds of millions of Windows devices were released with this vulnerable driver. Uh, so again, you know, um, Dell did release a security update to those customers. When you start talking about that's that sort of vulnerability um, at that level, it's it, you know I'm not I'm not certain how how well secured those historic devices would, would be at this point. So that so, that one's pretty worrisome.
0: Yeah. So so I mean I'm looking at the report right now and we probably have I don't know the 20, 30 different CVEs that um Simpson One discovered, but we highlighted five of them. So basically in the top two you just mentioned uh the the escalation of windows defender so any computer using windows defender the escalation or excuse me the uh vulnerability in dell computers so anybody any dell any little company dell i've heard of them before uh there's a few out there uh and then there's there's another one 16 years this uh uh printer vulnerability basically so so millions and millions of printers and how the uh the communication with the printer is leveraged uh vulnerable and i mean you cover basically people that use printers, people that use Dells, and people that use Windows Defender, all be basically being vulnerable to a significant vulnerability that since the one discovered, that's, that covers a lot of population. It's, I'll be honest, I'm kind of proud. I'm kind of, it's kind of cool coming from a company that's, you know, discovered these, these kind of security changing, landscape changing vulnerabilities.
2: Yeah, definitely the, the the printer vulnerability for sure. I think again with the CVSS eight point eight. So, you know, for the vulnerability management teams out there, that's the type of vulnerability number that you have to you have to respond to very quickly, and it tends to to raise alarm bells. So, it's it's definitely been something that I'm sure a lot of folks have had to look into, and and hopefully have had the opportunity to patch it. They the the Sentinel Labs team, you know, they they look for vulnerabilities that could impact our customers and create you know, potential exploitation, but we also do a lot of research into vulnerabilities of, of, uh, you know, all tools. And maybe sometimes that might be a tool that we see attackers using in the, in the wild as well, not just necessarily enterprise tools. So I know in, um, August, our threat, or I'm sorry, our vulnerability research has found a vulnerability within cobalt strike, a couple of versions of cobalt strike that, um, can actually contain like multiple denial of service vulnerabilities so you know you could actually halt cobalt strike operations if you knew about these vulnerabilities and maybe theoretically you could use that um, as a a defense mechanism rather than an exploit so that was an interesting article I thought as
0: well Hmm. interesting now that is cool all right, so we're gonna jump ahead a little bit. We, uh, what we did for our, our monthly, excuse me, our year-end report was uh, just do a brief run-through on the top security stories of the year, cybercrime stories of the year. We took one for each month, uh, January, February. Everyone has, see, every single month in 2021 had some massive story Basically, you know, one of the you know, so something that changed the world uh, in, in, in the world of cybercrime, security, threat research. I mean, it was amazing. 2021 was <clears throat> a, a scary but awesome year for security researchers, security organizations. So many massive attacks. Uh, and basically, between Naranja, Andrea, and myself, we all selected one that we would like to talk about. Uh, and, and we're going to spend a few minutes just doing a brief on our selected story from 2021. So let's launch this. Um, Drea, you wanted to talk about the Kaseya instance incident. So let us know what happened there.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I started working here at Sentinel One in the middle of June of, uh, of last year. And uh, two weeks later, on July 2nd, you, you know, the world of Kaseya sort of hit. And if you're, you know, if you're working in professional services or even if you're an MSSP or, or frankly a customer of an MSSP, this particular weekend was pretty memorable, I think, for a lot of us. And, you know, Kaseya resulting in what, what a lot of people define as a supply chain attack. I think there's some nuances there, but we don't need to split hair on them, hairs on those. But, you know, supply chain attacks, I think, are and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this in our predictions going you know, towards the end of, of the podcast, but they're really the, one of the, the ways of the attacker, you know, innovations or evolutions right now because of the potential for downward and downscale impact. And it's not brand new. You know, in 2007, we saw some Chinese man- manufacturer hard drives with embedded malware uh, and that got a lot of news. Uh, everybody remembers solar winds in 2020, and um, and of course, Kaseya happened here in 2021. So it was July 2nd when I think most people started to notice that um, that, that there was a, a ransomware, a broad scale ransomware incident happening. And it took not very long, I think, for researchers to to identify that it appeared it was a Kaseya VSA. Uh, application that appeared to be causing the, the, the encryption or rather uh, uh, the exploit. Uh, so it, it was, I think we're on noon uh, and there's so many built-in exclusions when you start talking about these, um, you know, third-party um, remote administration tools. By nature, they they need, you know, lots of access to do their jobs. And so, so, so often companies build in Exclusions and it makes it difficult to detect and therefore very successful for threat actors to use these sorts of tools um, in their attack chain. Um, and then I think on July 4th, you know, the White House confirmed that it had been working with the FBI and CISA. By this point, you know, everybody was aware of what was going on. I think they were already considering it to be the largest ransomware event in history. There were like 50 MSPs spanning 17 countries. Uh, and I think the downstream impact was somewhere between 800 and 1500 businesses. So obviously a million plus endpoints is an easy number to accept uh, as far as what was being um, kind of tossed around at that time. On the 5th of July, Revil came out and said they wanted 70 million dollars in Bitcoin for a global tool. So they were basically saying, hey, we'll give it you all this. Uh, the decryptor. Everybody can be happy. Just you know, find seventy million dollars. So I don't know if they were trying to crowdsource that money or looking for some sort of angel investor or what it was. But they were apparently. It seemed to be maybe getting a little bit desperate at that point. Uh, on July 11th, Kaseya restored their services. They issued a patch. And, you know, it came out. I think a couple of days in that they had known about a vulnerability. Now, granted, I think they'd only known about it since. Late spring, and they were actively trying to patch the vulnerability, which is, I think, where these nuances of was this a supply chain versus, you know, exploit of a zero day vulnerability. And, and again, you can kind of take, I could see both approaches there, but they did finally release the patch for all those on premise VSA customers um, about a week and a half later. Um, and then, interestingly enough, on July 13th, Revel disappears. Now, since then, there's been, you know, lots of suggestions that, you know, all black matter is the new Revol, and they say, well, we're not, but we respect them. And, and then Revol's, you know, presence has been here and there. So, you know, obviously, all of these threat actors evolve over time. Uh, but at that point, on the 13th, they disappeared for some time. A lot of people thought that maybe the U.S. government had um, taken them offline or, or captured their data in some kind of way. On the 22nd of July, Kaseya obtained a universal decryptor that they intended to share as long as you provided an NDA to them. Um, and then uh, they also confirmed that they did not pay the ransom. So that's kind of the, the background and story of, of the Kaseya incident that I'm sure so many of us remember so very well as it was the destroyer of a holiday weekend. But we certainly learned a lot. It's a, it's a historic moment still being you know the most impactful um, ransomware incident to date
0: yeah it, it was huge i know i remember it well our uh july 4th was was no more and i'm sure a lot of our listeners a lot of our you know a lot of uh, anybody in the security community had a similar situation uh but i mean a lot of things you touched on i find interesting um i'll, I'll hit on an i selected um the the pipeline colonial pipeline so i hit on this there as well but it, it it's kind of a definitely a shift that we've seen in Caseya in and other the the kind of the additional US government uh enforcement or action basically from US law enforcement and, and just seeing them much more active in responding to these ransomware groups, cyber criminal groups, has been an interesting shift in 2021 as well. We didn't see much of that in 2020 or really before that. And I mean, I think there's multiple reasons, right? I mean, sometimes it makes sense to just collect intelligence. Cause we, what have we also, what else have we seen in 2021? Uh, and I think Ron Johnson to go into this, is, is this rebranding, you know, of, of ransomware groups. Well, you shut one down and then it disappears and pops up under another name. Um, so it can almost turn into a, a whack-a-mole kind of situation which we never want because um, then we lose some intel. But on the other hand, I just feel good about taking some action against these guys um, so that that I thought was really interesting. The other thing I thought interesting as well is yeah, you're focused just on these supply chain things. You know, the other big one, and I know there's been some arguments. Um, this was at the tail end of 2019 into 2020. Am um, I got my years right? No, 2020 into 2021. Of course, was the uh, the solar winds, which I know between the security communities there's some argument was this truly supply chain um attack because of how it was leveraged but okay if i'm just gonna i'm gonna classify it in that and for the context of what i say for the next 30 seconds so if you don't if you're if you're deep in the security research community don't agree with me that's okay um but at the end of the day solar wind software was used to leverage larger attacks and this hit all over the place like government um, private sector education it was huge um and caseya um you know similar in, in impact um leveraging ransomware so just i mean the solarwinds was more apt nation state based gathering intelligence um <clears throat> Kaseo was more ransomware financially motivated cyber criminal but either way yeah the supply chain is is scary um and and it's it's was targeted heavy heavy this year uh so it's yeah start of a new trend yeah i don't want to take away our thunder for the predictions section but but interesting nonetheless.
2: Right, uh, yeah, I agree. And, and we will definitely, I'm, I'm sure, address that you know, here in a few minutes, because a, as you know, and we've mentioned before, I think you know, that, that increase in government uh, interest is, is probably very strongly related to the types of environments that we're now seeing be imp- being impacted, maybe things we hadn't seen before. And so we'll chat about that in a few.
0: All right. Well, all right, Naranja, I'm going to give the stage to you. You chose. Let me check. You chose Conti, Conti, and Darkside sharing resources to score a waffle. So I'm going to hand it off. And what can you tell us about that?
1: Uh thanks, Mike. So we believe that you know there is a chance that with the shutting down of Darkside ransomware servers and cashing out, its affiliates might have joined Conti group or might have shared some code. And the main reason that we say that is because when we were investigating on a Conti breach, uh, we identified that Squirrel Waffle was used as the infection vector. And as we started collaborating more artifacts from the endpoints, collaborated with d Team, Drea mainly, uh, we identified a handful set of files. The file names and the content actually matched uh, with July investigation when, uh, I mean, the dark side investigation that we conducted in the month of July, and when we looked into the Conti attack that started from SquirrelWaffle in the month of November, there was a clear match on the different file names and the file content itself, meaning like it is highly likely that the Conti group actually acquired some resources from dark side affiliates and just reused them for their more recent attack. And since DarkSide was shutting down, it is also possible that some of those affiliates might have joined the Conti group because in the year of 2021, we saw aggressive hiring happening across different affiliate groups. There were you know, groups collaborating really well. There were a few affiliates who were not happy with their payouts and so on. So that investigation actually gave us much more information on how these Affiliates operated throughout the year, and with the ransomware rebranding and resource sharing, uh, this particular investigation helped us identify that as soon as one group dies out, because government agents were probably you know targeting their infrastructure, they were very quick in sharing their resources to another group, and this happened to be a very classic example in that in such scenario.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. And then and in the, you know, like the Conti playbook leak was, was, you know, fascinating and uh, just getting that, that inside view um, on, on how, well, let me put it this way. As, as a company, Sentinel One, in my group, one of the things I'm focused on is process efficiency, documentation, onboarding training of new employees. You know, all of these are things that we need to focus on as a business to improve uh, our how we do our business operations and you know just the documentation and the training and all the things that they that, that, that go into that it's a lot of work it's a lot of effort it's something you expect out of a more mature business and then this leak from Conti comes and I'm like wow they, they did it I mean literally reams like volumes of of training materials of step-by-step uh, uh, for new affiliates new employees uh, on how to launch these attacks and hold companies for for ransom and and this is kind of you know tying back to what Dre was talking about the marketing campaigns and how they market mm-hmm. themselves as faster more efficient in their encryption and their exfiltration and say they're we're better than our competitors and then seeing you know again somewhat mature um onboarding documents and and training documents and training programs for new affiliates it's just not only was it a a wealth of information for us to hunt on and for us to protect and to to use it um, against them but also a uh, just another interesting window into the 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 world of ransomware
1: True, we developed our knowledge base on all these different groups and then we reused our knowledge base to help build multiple divisibility queries that we use to hunt across customer base and It was easy for us in some cases uh, when we had to attribute the attack to any specific group. So all in all, they were highly professional. They were very systematic and very well disciplined. If you look into their playbooks, things were systematically captured for any new hire to step up and just go ahead and conduct attack. Backend, it also helped us develop and enrich our rule sets to fight against them. So basically it was all good. It was a busy year And hopefully, in twenty twenty two is going to bring us more surprises, as they are about.
0: (laughs) It's one of those things. It's like, as a security researcher, twenty twenty one was amazing. So much happened. Um, I mean, really, every year has been like that for a long time. But um, here we are looking at twenty twenty two, and you know, we we know what keeps us interested in interesting investigations and fascinating new pivots by threat actors and you know that's what we enjoy so you're like well i hope 22 is as interesting as 2021 but then i take a look at that statement i'm like wow i just basically hoped for all kinds of terrible terrible attacks so let me rephrase (laughs) um but yes i know what you mean it was interesting and it kept us busy and it kept us out of trouble because we were uh too busy researching threats so i guess it's uh that's good but uh but yeah maybe maybe a little less impactful for for the community would be would be good as well yeah <laughs> all right well i wanted to talk about colonial pipeline i'll go quick so i mean this was interesting a group called dark side uh and launched this attack against a colonial pipeline which basically shut down oil and gas to the southeastern United States for an extended period of time. Um, talk about impact talk about where does cyber crime um, you know wh- where does that line blur between cyber crime and cyber terror this is pretty close right I mean cyber terrorism uh, if you take away in the middle of winter well in early spring the uh, the ability for us for the u.s citizens to heat their homes to, Drive have transportation. Um, if maybe I don't know if you remember. If you lived in the area, you probably do. But lines to get gas, you know, blocks and blocks and, and blocks long, waiting hours just to get get a fill up. If there was any gas to even get filled up, um, it had major impact for short term on the uh, on the lives of, of United States citizens in that region. And it was, um, to me, yeah, it starts to blend into what is becoming cyber terror. And it was, this was back in May that this happened. Uh, and what uh, what we really saw was an immediate reaction, which we started talking about before from the U.S. government. Uh, the, the president's administration was highly involved. It resulted in a $5 million payout. R- reports say, right, I don't know if this is completely verified, but reports say uh, within days of the attack, company paid out $5 million in ransom. That's a lot for uh, one successful attack, uh, it, it, and it makes money, right? It makes sense that there's so much time and effort and professionalism that goes in to these attacks when there's that much money being paid out. But, uh, you know, very rapid response from the, uh, the U.S. government in the sense that they captured their money, right? The, whether, I don't know if it's the FBI, and I'm sure it was other, I know I say U.S., I'm sure there was many other international law enforcement partners involved. Uh, but basically the, the end result was capturing their money and, and locking up, seizing their, their digital assets, both from a financial point of view and even from just the, the servers that they have. And I love, personally, I love seeing this kind of reaction because I get so tired of just seeing the attacks come and not having us not take action. Now, what happened, right? Um, so, so the short-term result was very successful in the sense that, we were monitoring the dark web and i and Naranjan reaching out to me and saying, Hey, look at this. Um, suddenly dark side actors are being banned from the dark web, basically being banned from these cyber criminal uh, marketplaces where they uh, are supposed to pay their affiliates. Basically, we took away their ability to pay their employees, to pay the people that are supposed to be compromising networks for them. They lost, oh, well, maybe 830,000 I see as one. You know, we, we, we uh, well, more than that, um, I, I need to pull up a, a better number, but you know, a significant amount of, of their finances we took and locked their ability to get access to and, and in many ways shut down Darkseid. But then the question is, did they just rebrand? Did they just come back? Are we just going to see them again? And, and I'll, I'll actually, I'll save some of that for Naranja, but I think, um, I think that's exactly what happened, right? We took them down um, and then they're going to spring back up down the road so again it comes back to that cost benefit analysis i kind of like what we're doing just take them down and then take them down again i like it better than just sitting back and watching but the other side of that coin is um you know uh, if we do we take them down and we lose that source of intelligence because now we got to find what's the new brand what's the new infrastructure what's changed Uh, so i don't know i see both sides of that of that argument what do you think Drea?
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I think uh, you know, um, it kind of goes back to the same method—not the same methodology—but I, I think of it like I thought of, you know, you know, if you, back for the last few years, an in incident response. And you know, if you're dealing with an advanced threat actor, or frankly, if you just suspect you're dealing with an active uh, threat actor, you're oh, you know, from an incident response perspective, you always have that philosophical question of. Do I start cutting the you know the lines of communications in an effort of containment, potentially tipping my hand to them when I do or don't know if there are you know other, other footholds in the network, or do I continue to monitor and learn? And, and that's always a question that you have to consider uh, you know dependent on the specific incident and I see this as somewhat similar in that you know we recognize that taking action may result in, new, uh, groups and, and, and we may have to start somewhat from scratch as far as learning and what we know, but we're also sort of, you know, stopping the bleed. So I think, uh, you know, I agree with you. And I, I think that the more and more we start to see government action, uh, is, is helpful, but i'm concerned that we're starting to see that government action because again of the types of targets where we're starting to see actually become impacted whether that's infrastructure or healthcare or, or what and then, you know again we, we'll be talking about that i'm sure in a few moments but uh, all of these are side effects of something much greater that uh, is is alarming
0: for sure sure all right um well we're actually running a little short on time but naranjan um i want to hand it to you to do a little bit of our he did a ransomware review from 2021. So if you could just give, take a few minutes and, and walk us through what uh what what was what what did we see in the ransomware groups in the last year?
1: Um well as I said before, uh, aggressive hiring and then you know when it comes to the highest ransomware paid compared to 2020 for the year 2021 we actually saw four times. So the highest ransomware paid reported, it's close to about 40 million. The average ransomware paid, uh, sorry, the average ransom demand was close to about 5.3 million. The highest ransom demand was uh, 100 million and the average ransomware payout uh, shoot up from 2020 has increased by 518%, which is huge. So other than that, uh, 2021 also saw, a huge number of ransomware rebranding, meaning these guys were not giving up as soon as they were taken down, or probably, uh, you know, something bad happened out there, and probably some affiliates left their organizations or whatever. Be the reason they came back with a new name, with a new leak site, and they continued to target multiple uh, organizations, mainly focusing in the U.S. and in Europe region. So, twenty twenty one was a year where we saw huge ransomware rebranding. We blogged about few, but another uh, key insight from threat hunting side was that they did continue to leave out few common artifacts. Uh, it could have been like specific text file. Uh, they were kind of daring as well, Brian, like uh, they didn't worry too much if they would be traced. Uh, they just, uh, you know, went ahead and reused some of their old tools, um, but I'm very proud to say that uh, you know from the Sentinel One side, a lot of these attacks did originate from non-Sentinel One protected endpoints. And in the year 2021, we did see a lot of these attacks blocked, meaning like even before the attacker was launching any payloads on a se- Sentinel One protected machine, they were blocked then and there. So that was also another great thing that we saw from you know was our threat hunting side. Um, and as Rhea said, they were highly, highly professional. They were not shying back from advertising their great works. They were definitely comparing each other in terms of their, uh, you know, encryption uh, techniques and how fast their tools were performing comparing with other groups out there. So that was what we saw in uh, 2020 as a whole.
0: Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, it has was a year of us... Looking at uh, all of these different attempted attacks, and being very comfortable with where we work in the sense that, uh, it yeah they, they don't they don't get by Sentinel One, so it was uh, it was that that was pretty pretty good to see. But it's also super fun to research these groups and understand what they're doing and how they're doing it and and the money they're making. Um, so anyway, let's run into the predictions. So. Uh, prediction for 2022. Number one, ransomware attacks will continue to grow both in frequency and cost of victim. <laughs> I guess that was a safe one, right? <laughs> um, Western law enforcement efforts to combat these groups will also escalate and achieve some short term wins. But the call of endless profit to be made will certainly draw cyber criminals back to this cash cow. So okay, we zeroed in a little bit. Of course, ransomware groups are going to continue to grow and attacks will continue to grow when there's hundreds of millions of dollars to be made. So <laughs> let's not make it such a safe prediction, um, but also saying that um, if you know if, if the West if, if whatever we're doing is suddenly going head-to head combat, um, from a government point of view, with these cyber criminals continues, we're going to see the, uh, what well, we're going to see some things that look good, just like with what I talked about on, on the on the uh, Colonial Pipeline attack. We'll see some good wins, but we're going to see them come back later, right? It's just going to be a continual cycle. Um, thoughts on that, Drea, Naranjan? Is it true? Is it just going to be a continual cycle like that? Or is there, are we able to basically hit back and, and take them down long term?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that you're, you're right when you say, I I suspect there will be some occasions where we actually get, you know, specific individuals and and maybe some of those occasions will be, you know, impactful enough to, 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 you know, have some sort of momentum shift, but the reality is that there's just, there's an outnumbered uh, situation here and, and, there's so much anonymity with the nature of the internet, especially when folks are, are smart about how they're, that they're, you know, they're going about doing these things that, yeah, I mean, once they just go underground for a period of time and they can, they can spin back, back, back up until there's some sort of technological shift or, or new capabilities uh, provided. I, I don't see that changing.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, the one way we can really truly take them out is arrests and not just a few arrests, a lot of long-term arrests and sending them off to a gulag somewhere um the challenge there is mean I, I i my background i spent all the time with the fbi and i can do i did plenty of investigations into russian threat actors uh and even though there we have what's called an MLAT mutual legal assistance treaty even though we have extradition agreements oftentimes that never happens oftentimes those extradition and and, in legal assistance treaties or we're supposed to share intel and all that stuff can be used almost as a recruiting mechanism for 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 russia to say yep that's a good hacker we want him working for the government uh so with that and the reason i say that is russia ukraine well i mean they're all over the place even brazil's got good good hacking groups we see them out of vietnam they're all over the, the world but you know traditionally eastern europe china and uh, that extradition is really hard to achieve. If not that extradition, at least just making local arrests. It happens sometimes, but it takes a phenomenal amount of international coordination, governments coordinating with each other. Um, it's not easy. And <clears throat> sometimes we see some successes. Sometimes we see some success for one or two people, but it's not enough to really cut the head off the, off the Hydra, right? Or cut all the heads off the Hydra. Uh, so... I think that's the one way we can achieve long-term success here, putting the grand majority of these threat actor groups in jail, but um, it's super hard to do.
2: Yeah, I, that, I, that or finding some way to to access you know, whatever assets or monetary uh, fund, you know, funds that they have from their actions. And that's probably just as equally difficult with things like cryptocurrency.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, number two, <clears throat> the increasingly aggressive clash between the U.S. government and cyber criminals will lead to the abandon- abandonment of the noble criminal mentality. So the noble criminal mentality, meaning these groups, they, I, I think it's almost like a psychological fail-safe that we all have. We all want to be the hero in our own story. And even criminals don't really want to accept the accept the role of bad guy. Often they don't. You know, often we see it time and time again, these cr- Criminals are like, well, we're a security service. You got to pay us a million dollars in ransom now, but we're showing you where the weaknesses in your security are. Uh, We see other ones that have, and this is kind of the noble criminal mentality of, we're not going to attack the hospitals, the orphanages, uh, you know, the schools. We're not going to attack that. We're only going to target these corporations that have the money to spend. Um, I see that. I I just see that dying down. Because, I mean, even Darkseid was one of those groups. And, really like I said, colonial pipeline was akin to cyber terror. Uh, they're hurting people. they want money And I, I think especially as we have the uh, um, more of a I, I, to even tie it to the government response, maybe that's inaccurate because I see that might push it a little bit further. But I think a general trend of everybody's a target is what we're gonna see. We're not going to see any more of this uh, we're not going to hit this group because we're all good people. I think everybody's gonna be a target. We're gonna see that more and more through 2022.
2: Yeah, I, I think for, for a while there, there was a lot of focus during the pandemic, especially there was a lot of focus on healthcare workers and um, you know just gen- general concern for people. I think we were all just much more connected culturally to each other and so i think there was there was just a moment where everybody was just as impacted by those sorts of cyber attacks on that sort of infrastructure and it did it took a it took a highlight as far as what that could mean to a healthcare organization in the height of a, of a global pandemic and especially you i'm sure you watch you know some of these mainstream television shows that, that try their best to bring in aspects of cybercrime. And so many over the last few years have been focused on what would happen, you know, what happens when ransomware hits a medical facility. And I think just for me personally, in conversations that I've had a lot of medical professionals in my family, you know, the, during the pandemic, it was like almost immediately something that everybody thought about. And I feel like maybe these threat actors came out and made these statements around that period of time intentionally to, you know, I don't know. Get, get some good sympathy or or for whatever reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, all right. <clears throat> Prediction number three, VPN and other secure remote access technologies will be heavily targeted. So the tw- the, I'll just read it. The COVID pandemic led to more employees working remotely than ever before. And this is not likely to change in 2022 since the shift occurred so quickly, most companies were not able to properly secure the remote workforce. This will um, make employees and and their methods for connecting back to the corporate network prime targets in 2022. So yeah, I mean, this was this mass migration to remote work. I'm working remotely. I know Drea is, um, Neurondron is, uh, I mean, we, this, uh, I mean, it's been growing. Uh, Me personally, for the last decade, I've focused on hiring, you know, you, you run into this, shift in mentality do you want to hire the best in the world no matter where they are and and try to make sure you 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 create that that company culture and loyalty and communication and friendships over zoom and other technologies like that or do you want to hire in a central location where you can get everybody coming into an office get to know each other build the loyalty that kind of thing that way um i've always kind of targeted and i see but the cost benefits of both sides i've always kind of fallen on the path of Let's let people work from wherever they want, hire remotely, but get the best in the world, bar none. Uh, And it seems that, you know, the COVID situation in the last year or two basically drew the majority of the world, even the people that thought offices were the only way to go. Drew that um, willing or not into this remote workforce mentality, and it happened so quick. COVID hit, and it was like nobody knew what to do. Nobody came to the office, and suddenly everybody was just out there. and um, And that's going to continue. I don't see us ever going back. I mean, in some organizations maybe, um, but I, I see this this remote workforce concept um, being just you know staying for forever really, in my opinion. And uh, again, we saw the some increasing increasing trends for 2021. But I think that's going to be doubled down on any way to remotely access your corporate assets through someone's laptop. And who knows, this laptop, maybe your kid plays uh, games on it and watches